Hey, uh, welcome again. Uh, if you were not here for the uh, welcome and announcements and call to worship, my name is Elliot. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us. Um, if you are visiting, this is a great stretch to visit in. If you've been calling Midtown Troll South home for any number of weeks or months, it's a great uh, season to be reminded, uh, or maybe even here for the first time in the last year or two that you've been coming, that um, who we are, what we're about, what we believe in, what our uh, vision and mission is, and what we care about in this world. Um, so historically in the month of January, we kind of uh, remind and, and remember and recast uh, what our vision is. Who are we? What are the things, what's our ethos? What is our foundation? What's our trajectory? What's our mission? What's our, um, what's our purpose for being here? And so it's a great stretch to either get reacquainted with or to hear for the first time what we're about. Um, you may not know this, but Midtown Fellowship Church is one church in this city, uh, but we have five, uh, soon to be six kind of iterations of uh, our one churchness. So we're part of this family of churches uh, and each iteration, each congregation, we don't pipe in sermons to e all over the city. Uh, each iteration looks, feels, functions, uh, for all intents and purposes, is its own local church. But at the end of the day, each church is a part of this family. And so like a family, each congregation, each iteration is a sibling of that family. And um, it's not that there's sibling rivalries, but we have different roles. We have different gifts. We have different uh, values, things that we care about and roles that we play in this city as we're trying to bring the gospel to our specific context and our mission and vision at 12 South uh, and in this city. And so you're not going to hear over the next couple of weeks so much about Midtown as a whole and what that looks like and how that's structured and what happens uh, when this happens. And we're not talking about Midtown, the, the, the family of churches. We're talking about 12 South, uh, this location, this sibling, this child of the family. Um, and so who are we? What, do, what does 12 South care about? Uh, what's our vision? What are our values? And what you're going to hear today, and if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, before we had a snowed out Sunday, last Sunday, uh, what you're going to hear today is not necessarily radically different than our East Nashville uh, congregation, our Creve Hall congregation, our West Nashville congregation. We're all part of the same family. So our values uh, are very, very similar. Um, but you're just going to hear kind of slight tweaks of how are we seeking to uh, express the gospel and the beauty of Jesus uh, in our context. So 12 South's vision statement is as follows. Courtney, you can throw this up there. Uh, you heard this a few weeks ago, if you, if you were here. We are a church that believes in the importance of Jesus and the word and how it transforms us to be the church to our world. As we grow and mature in Christ, we believe we become agents of renewal and revival in our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, city, and beyond. We are a church that believes in the importance of Jesus and the word and how it transforms us to be the church to our world. As we grow and mature in Christ, we believe that we become agents of renewal and revival in our homes, neighborhoods, workplaces, city, and beyond. So for uh, just like a three-week, three-part series in this January stretch, we're talking about that first sentence of our mission statement, kind of chunk by chunk. So a couple weeks ago, before we got snowed out, like I said last week, which by the way, side note, we got snowed out, you got a text or an email or a tweet or something to tell you we're, I walked up here to put signs on the door at like 8.30. Um, and guys, it was so sad because we were the only thing not open on the street. Like frothy was bustling and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, hey, church is, church is closed. It's too rainy, I guess. But then the snow hit, you know, and it was good that we canceled, but a little bit of shame for me. So just private confession, very publicly. Anyway, um, back to why we're here. Um, we are looking at this second chunk. A few weeks ago, we looked at, we are a church that believes 
and the importance of Jesus and his word. And we looked at this. Everybody in here has a creed. Everybody in here has a creed that's informing uh, the way that they live and the way that they view the world. And everyone in here who has a creed has a source and an authority for that creed. What you have decided is a trustworthy source to inform you about ultimate reality. You have a source for that. And so we talked about Jesus and his word as our ultimate source for ultimate reality here and it informs everything we do. The next chunk we're gonna talk about is how that, how it, how Jesus and his word transforms us to be the church how it transforms us to be the church. That's what we're talking about today. I know as soon as I say that word church, everyone in here uh, has a narrative, uh, assigns meaning to that word. I know as soon as I say the word church, it's loaded with history, it's loaded with memory, it's loaded with opinion, it's loaded with pain, it's loaded with uh, missteps, it's loaded with failings, it's loaded with grudges, it's loaded with wounds. I know that your story has caused you to define that word in a particular way. I want you to know that's real. In no way would I ever try to uh, talk you out of how you have come to understand that word, the church, because here's what else I know is true, is that the church, in the name of Jesus, has done unspeakable harm to people. And the church, throughout its history, has done incalculable amounts of grief and tragedy and wounding in the name of Jesus to people. And so I in no way will try to defend those that, uh, that perpetrated that. Here's what I would just say to you, is that maybe those experiences, maybe those very real examples, maybe they aren't the image of the real thing. Maybe what those are is evil perversions of the real thing. And so would you, would you dare for a morning, um, if that's you, if you, if you, don't, if you came in here uh, not, a, not wanting to hear anything about what does it mean to be the church, because I've got stories about that. I came, maybe you came to the church, and I know this is true for some of you because I, I, I've talked with you. You came to this church because uh, we don't feel like many other churches. And so I don't want to come and hear about what is the church and what is this. I, I'm trying to actually get away from some of that. I would just, I would plead with you would, you, would you dare to imagine a reality um, of what the real thing is, of what the real thing, the Bible says about the real thing, the church, that maybe the biblical definition of the church um, would woo you, maybe the real thing, not the perversions of evil that it's become in certain parts of our history, but maybe you would lean into the real thing. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. What does it mean to be the church as the Bible would define what is the church? That term church, it's used all over the New Testament. The New Testament was written in ancient Greek. The Greek word for church, it appears all over uh, the writings of the New Testament is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia is not a Bible word. The Bible didn't invent that word. Uh, all that the word ekklesia means is a gathering. It means an assembly, a regular assembly with a shared purpose. So when people gather for any understood shared collective purpose, that's an ecclesia. So there, in the ancient world, there were political gatherings, there were political ecclesias, there were educational ecclesias, there were familial ecclesias that, that when people knew, hey, we're getting together for this reason, when we have this shared purpose in a regular gathering for that reason, we're an ecclesia. That when a group of people are the, the mobs of people maybe go to Severe Park uh, on any given Tuesday to hang out in the park, you may all be at the park, but there's not a shared understanding of this is why we've all come here for the same exact reason. So just any gathering of people in any random setting is not an ecclesia. Gathering in a regular assembly for a shared purpose is an ecclesia. 
And so the church, God's people, the ecclesia of God gathers on Sundays for a regular purpose, for a shared understanding of this is why we're here and this is what we're here to do. And so here's what you need to understand. First and foremost, Midtown has said this for years. Um, the church is not a building. That when the New Testament talks about the church like hundreds of times, that only like three or four is it talking about a physical structure. That when it talks about the church over and over again, the ecclesia is the people. And so we've said this for years. You didn't come to church today. That the, those that belong to Jesus that came into this room to gather for an ecclesia for a shared purpose, you brought the church into this room today. You are the church. And so this space becomes sacred when you're in it. That this, the, the brick and mortar of this wonderful old hipster building is not, is, is, is not sacred in and of itself. It's, 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 it's sacred because you're in it. And you are the church, and so we like to say thank you for bringing the church into this room this morning. That's what an ecclesia is. Our gathering is what makes this what it is. But in classic biblical fashion, to try to get at the understanding of what is something, the Bible uses a lot of metaphor, a lot of analogy, and you, can kinda, you have to kind of bring this to the table and that to the table, and what is this ecclesia, okay, this shared purpose, but there's all these other metaphors and analogies that come into this, what is this thing that we call the church? The New Testament has a lot of metaphors, a lot of pictures, a lot of facets to try to get us to understand what is this gathering. Four main analogies, four main pictures to try to describe uh, what the church is in the New Testament. There are others, but four main ones. The church is the bride of Jesus the King. The church is the body of Jesus the King. The church is the temple of Jesus the King. And the church is the city of Jesus the King. Bride, body, temple, city. Which means on some level, this is, it's trying to get at this analogy and you have to kind of mash them all together and they all fall apart when you bring them all together, but they're all trying to say something to you about what this ecclesia is. You're dearly loved, you're dearly protected, you're dearly pursued, you're dearly delighted in as the bride. That you're dearly unique and you have a unique role and you have unique giftings, but you're a part of something much bigger than just yourself or your story, you're a part of a body that you are holy and you are immortal and you will, your, your legacy will last in the, on this earth because you are part of the temple of the living God of King Jesus and his spirit lives inside of you if you belong to him. And so you're part of this temple that's much more epic of a, of a generational lasting storyline than you. And you're part of this city, which means you're connected and you, there's resources that you bring to the city to make it a beautiful place and resources you take from the city to make it a beautiful place. And you're part of this city that's trying to be and, and transform this city with the light of this city. Our city is trying to transform the darkness of our city, Nashville. And so all these things, this interconnectedness, this, this body, this bride, this temple, this city, that's getting at all this together makes the ecclesia what it is. And those portrayals, those pictures, those images start to help us color the imagination of what it means to be the church that gathers here. So we're going to play with those metaphors this morning. I know this is a lot. Um, we're now, that was the giant intro, okay, sorry. But now we're going to go to Scripture. Every week of our three-week vision series, we're looking at this same passage in Acts chapter two. We're looking at the original church, the first church, the first organism and gathering of the church in the New Testament, Acts chapter two. And I hope this is what you see. This is truly the goal of what I hope you see when we turn to Acts chapter two. I hope when you hear Acts chapter two and you just saw our vision statement, you will go, man, you stole a lot from Acts chapter two. 
There we go. Exactly. Like we're not trying to reinvent some wheel and we finally figured out how to do church in 2022 and every generation before us was stupid and now we've got it. No, we're actually trying to show you how wildly unoriginal our vision of what it means to be the church in 12 South is because we're just going to the source. This is what the church has always been. And so here's Acts 2, 42 through 47. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and, all, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's the word of the Lord, amen. So for our purposes today, as we talk about that second chunk of our vision statement, um, how were they transformed to be the church? We're just gonna look at a couple of these verses in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Throw back up there, if you will, Courtney, uh, 42 and then 44 and then 46. I'm gonna skip around. 42 says this. And they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And then verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So the early church, the first church, the very first organized uh, church of this organism of the ecclesia and the body and the bride of Jesus was devoted to, was occupied with, was paying persistent attention to, was holding on to these things that were just read, what the habits that you just heard that they were doing. But one verse that I thought might jump off the page at you, that it jumps off the page if you, if you kind of take your time and read this passage, one, one little sentence, verse 44 and all who believed had all things in common. Okay, so what you need to know historically is that who that's talking about was different genders, different economic uh, statuses, uh, different ideologies, different political views, different family backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities. That what was just said about verse 44, all who believed had all things in common, does not mean that they were monolithic. It doesn't mean it was all the same person. And that's why they had all things in common because of course, they saw everything the same exact way. They had the same exact view on everything. They made the same exact money. They voted the same way. They didn't vote for an emperor, but you know what I mean? They didn't have the same, it wasn't that. What it means is, is that they had chosen to make all of those identities that I just listed, their secondary identities. And what they had chosen as their first identity, their primary identity, was this new gathering, this new ecclesia, this new bride, this new body, this new temple, this new city. That was their primary identity. And so when it says in verse 44, all who believed had all things in common, here's what it means. It means that whatever need arose in their ecclesia, whatever need came to the surface, social need, economic need, relational need, spiritual need, emotional need, whatever need was brought to the body, whatever need was brought to the gathering, guess what? The body, the rest of the gathering shared, lifted, and carried it. Other parts of Acts will, will go on to say that in those gatherings, in those ecclesias, in those churches, no one had any need. 
not because no one had needs, but because when they brought their need to the church, guess what happened? It got carried, it got met, and it got lifted. So you could bring your full self to a body with all of your need. I don't know how I'm gonna pay rent next month. My mom just died. I don't know how I'm gonna face the next tragedy. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lonely, I'm exhausted. And you could bring all that need to this beautiful thing called this ecclesia, called the church. And guess what? It was carried and it was met. You are not alone because you belong now to something bigger than you. They had everything in common, meant that no one was alone to carry the weight of who they were out on their own apart from the group. When I bring my burden of who I am to the group, it gets lighter. And not only is this group, this collection, this assembly, this body, this bride gonna hold me, sustain me, nourish me, and feed me, guess what else it means? And this is maybe more daring to believe. It means that when you join that body, when you join that ecclesia, you have a part to play in doing that for other people. Do you know the dignity and the nobility and the value of saying, I don't really know where I belong or what I'm supposed to do and what my purpose is, but when I bring it to this place, I get asked because of who I am to meet certain needs for people. I get to actually be who God made me to be and use my gifts and use my joys and use my, what God has done in me and through me. I get to now bring that to a body and I get to meet someone else's needs. I get to help make the burden lighter for other people. I can need and be needed here in the most healthy of ways. Does any part of you think that that's like a little beautiful? That like I could, I could bring my full self somewhere and I could bring my loneliness and my addiction and my resources and my story and my giftings and I could bring all of that, all my trauma, I could bring it all and when I'm a part of this bigger thing than me, my burden is now lighter because I'm being carried and I get to carry. If any part of you thinks that that's beautiful, here would be the next logical question. How did they get there? How did they become that kind of community? Or in the language of our vision statement, how were they transformed into that kind of community? Which should make us ask an even bigger question. We're getting meta here, okay? Not like Facebook meta, but like actual meta, okay? Here's, here's a bigger question. How do we become anything? How are we transformed at all? How did you become who you are? How are we transformed? How do we change? What forms us and what transforms us? Author James K. Smith, he's one of my favorite living authors. You should read everything he's written. I'll buy it for you if you want. Um, But he, he has written extensively about this idea You are what you love is really helpful on this. Desiring the kingdom is really helpful about this. But here's what he kind of expounds on the idea of. And after I expound on it, you won't have to go read them. So you're welcome. But here's essentially what he says. That the practices of your daily life, the practices, the habits of your weekly rhythms, he calls them liturgies. Like the regular habitual things that you do, the things you do with regularity, the liturgies of your life, The things that you spend your time doing are a direct result of the things that you already love. And the things that you already love, that you have affection towards, they inform the kinds of habits and the kind of liturgies that you are going to participate in day in and day out and week in and week out. For example, if I love the experience of rich food, if I love a like fine dining experience, went to Answer this week for the first time, maybe I've been to Answer, Sylvan Park. Four of you have been to Answer. 
God, okay, there we go. God, why, why did it take me asking twice? Um, but it was amazing. Date night with my wife. It was a birthday date. It was amazing. And, and we love that experience of fun date nights at, at fun new places. Guess what our love for those things drives us to do? Save for or receive hashtag gift cards for, yes, to go to these places. We love going to these places because our love informs our actions. Our loves, our affections informs our habits. If you love live music, if you have affection for a, the, the experience of a concert, seeing the art, seeing the display, being a part of something bigger, bigger, if you love that experience for your favorite bands, you will spend money, you will save money, you will take trips, you will make those experiences happen. The regular liturgies of your life, the things that you continually practice doing are formed and informed by your loves. If you love leisure, if you love rest, I could look at your bank account and your calendar and probably tell you, you've probably made that happen vacations, trip to see friends, taking days off. Your loves will inform the things that you do, the liturgies of your life. If you love the way that you look and want to keep looking that way, if you love health and the way that you want to feel about yourself, you probably are crazy and go to CrossFit. Like you probably like, you probably have this like, this desire, I want to look and feel and, and be a certain way. And it is reflected in the choices that you've made. The liturgies of your life are informed by your loves, but then wait. This is what James K. Smith is getting at. All those things that we love that produce our habits, all the things that we desire that produce our liturgies, they don't just become liturgies and then stay out in the, in the, in the experience only. Meaning, it is a cyclical relationship that the things that I love form my habits and my liturgies. And guess what my habits and my liturgies do to me? They form and they reinforce and they transform my loves. So it's not just that I go do these things and that I'm unaffected by the things that I do. The more that something becomes a liturgy of my life, it informs and transforms my desires and affections. So that when my wife and I went on a date to answer, guess what I wanna do again now? Guess what it reinforces for me? I wanna keep doing it. I want it, re, it reforms, it transforms and continues to form the love that caused me to first do it. There's a cyclical nature of the liturgies of our life. Our loves and our desires drive our liturgies and our liturgies inform and shape our loves and desires. In other words, your liturgies form you. Your liturgies, your habits shape you. Your habits, your liturgies change you. Because of this cyclical nature, please see this, they are, they are so interrelated your liturgies are what transform you. That's what James K. Smith's first, or the, the easier to read when you are what you love, the spiritual power of habit. Your liturgies are shaping and changing you. You and I build our lives around how we spend our hours and our days and our weeks. In the words of Mumford and Sons, yeah, I know, I know. They're not cool anymore, okay? <laughs> Where you invest your love, you invest your life. Our liturgies have a formative power on us. You are not immune to being unaffected by the way that you spend your time. It affects you, it shapes you, it forms you, it changes you. Now let's ask this even more meta question. I know we're getting real meta. We're gonna come back to Acts chapter two, I promise. Why do our liturgies form us and shape us? 
what is the formative power of a liturgy to form and reinform my loves and desires and affections? It's because you can't behold something and not become like it. And here's what our liturgies do. Our liturgies continually put us in front of something that we want to keep beholding. And so you cannot behold something and not become it. The Bible teaches this in many places. 1 John 3, 2. For when we see him, we will be like him. When you behold Jesus, guess what you'll become like? Jesus. Because we become what we behold. And liturgies, patterns, habits, guess what they're continually doing? They're continually putting us in front of something to gaze at, to dwell with, to behold. And so the liturgies shape us and form us because you cannot become something without beholding it. And the more you behold it, the more you will become it. Crude example of this is that if you spend time looking at porn on the internet, it will constantly have you in front of something where you are beholding selfishness and abuse and narcissism and unhealth in relationships. And you think you can just view that and not be changed by that and not be formed by that. What kind of person do you think it's trying to form you into being? I am not trying to add shame to your life. I'm saying, do you think you can do that and not be affected by it? Because the more you behold something, the more you become something. Let's go less crude. How about like social media? Not asking you to raise your hand, I'm raising my hand, okay? Like how about Twitter? Twitter is a dumpster fire and I spend time in it. Okay, and here's, here's what it is. What kind of person do you think I'm becoming when I scroll the rage and the comparison and the people trying to be something and I numb myself out to scrolling on it? How numb do you think I'm becoming? Or how enraged do you think I'm becoming because you become what you behold? So the more time you spend on social media or the more time you spend looking at Instagram and all that Instagram is, is just people trying to make you jealous of their life. So when you try to, when you look at their perfect life, even if they're confessing or if they're trying to do like the cool, I want to make you seem like I'm raw and cool and authentic and all that, it's making you want to be them. And so now I want to be them. And now all I'm doing is practicing jealousy and comparison while I'm scrolling. So when I behold it, guess what I become? You cannot keep putting yourself in front of something. You cannot keep beholding it and not become it. And so liturgies keep putting us in front of something to behold. Liturgies keep putting us in front of something and saying, gaze upon this. Notice the beauty of this thing and keep gazing at it. Now, it may be a perversion of a beautiful thing, but you're drawn to it with a liturgy of your life to keep becoming like it, to keep beholding it. So, all that to say, how do you spend your time? And again, that is not meant to condemn you or like shame you. That's meant to say, do you know you have liturgies of your life? Do you know you have things that you continually gaze upon? Do you know you have something that you are beholding with regularity? And that should let you know it's maybe having an impact on me. Maybe it's forming me and transforming me. And it's transforming my loves and desires and affections so much. I know I'm building new liturgies based on that. And the new liturgies are causing me to gaze upon something that is now forming and transforming me. What are the liturgies of your life? And so, back to Acts chapter 2. Look at this early church. Look at them 
being the church. We ask the question, how did they become this? How were they transformed into doing this? Let's look at their liturgies. Let's look at their habits. Let's look at the things that they were doing with regularity. They were not letting any single individual have to carry their own burden. Everybody had all things in common and no one was carrying their own burdens and they were, things were lighter because they were needing and being needed. How they become that? What transformed them into that? What were their habits and their liturgies? Let's look back at verse 42. Courtney 42 and I'm gonna skip to 46. And they devoted themselves to, that means they continually did, fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and day by day, liturgy by liturgy, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. What were their liturgies? What were their regular practices that were forming and informing and transforming them? Fellowship, they were together with their people. Breaking of bread, that's like dinner together, meals together, enjoying each other over meal, and it's reference to the communion table, like the, the religious practice of the sacrament of communion. They were praying together, they were attending temple together, religious ceremonies and gatherings, and they were in their homes. And here's what you need to know, and the Bible presents this, presents humanity with such an honest, freeing uh, portrayal of us, that you don't have to try to be something you're not. When it says that these were their practices and these were their liturgies day by day, please don't mistake that when Johnny in the early church woke up on Tuesday, he wasn't always thrilled to go to Sally's house. Like he wasn't like some robot that just always was excited about it. He wasn't always pumped to go to temple and pray. He, it's not saying like, man, they reached spiritual nirvana and you better get there if you want to be transformed like them. They knew that these liturgies formed them and transformed them and they were beholding something as they were becoming something. The cyclical nature of the liturgies was continually forming and transforming them even though they didn't always want to do it. And here's what the Bible would say about the spiritual liturgies of your life. Do you know that your barometer for whether or not you should have a certain liturgy should never be whether or not you feel like doing it that day? Like that, 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 is, that is beholding something else, namely you. And let me be the dictator of what is best for me on any given Tuesday. Instead of what these people understood is, man, I don't always want to do this, but the more I liturgize myself with this, the more this is a habit of mine, I know it's going to form and transform me into being something beautiful called the church. Their liturgies continually were forming and transforming them to be the church in the first century. Now, you may balk at that. You may roll your eyes at that. You may hear that and think to yourself, I have no interest in being the church like that. Truly. You may have no interest in being part of a formation like this. You may have no interest in being the church like they were. I get it. Let me just pause for a moment and remind you of something. The church is not just a building. We've said this. The church, as we said before, is pictured in these incredible ways in the New Testament. The ecclesia is the bride, the body, the temple, the city of King Jesus. And so here's what I would just hope help you understand that if you, if, you, if you roll your eyes at this beautiful early church and go, I don't really know if I'm interested in that, please at least be honest enough with yourself to admit this, that whether or not you know it or whether or not you're choosing to do that in the context of a local community, please know this, you are already trying to be the church somewhere. That you don't actually have a choice on whether or not you want to be like the church. Here's what I mean by that you're already trying to be loved. 
You're already trying to be desirable, to be unique enough for someone to want you. You long to be desired by somebody. And the church comes along and says, come and be the body of Christ. Come and be the bride of Christ who is already nurtured, already desired, already pursued, and already protected. Not because of any work that she's done, but because of what Jesus has done for his bride. You're already trying to be different and unique. You're already trying to have a story that sets you apart and to be, to be noticed and to have something that no one else has. And the, and the church looks at you and says, come and be the body of Christ where your gifts and your unique story aren't limited to just you and your little universe. They're actually a part of something bigger and you get to use your very unique story and your very unique wiring as a part of this bigger body and the gifts that God's given you to come be a part of this much bigger interconnected thing than just you and on your own. You're already trying to be immortal. You're already trying to last longer than just your lifetime. You're already trying to do something so epic that people will talk about it and remember you. And the church looks at you and says, come and be the temple of King Jesus here where you will be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and you will join a legacy and a history that will far outlive any mark you make or epic life that you live. Join your desire to be immortal with something that actually is. You're already trying to be connected and interconnected with other people. And the church looks at you and says, come and be the city of King Jesus that welcomes the alien, welcomes the foreigner, welcomes the outcast, welcomes the marginalized from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. Every economic status, every background, every view on anything, you're welcome here. To be interconnected with a city that's bigger and honestly more beautiful than yours. And all of that, all of those things that the church is inviting you to do and inviting you to be here, please hear this. All of that should, be, should sound so liberating because all of that is who the church invites you to be and you don't have to lift a finger. It's all because of the work of Jesus, not because of the work of you. Come and be loved. Come and be different. Come and be immortal. Come and be connected. All because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to purchase it. You receive it because of what Jesus has done. What if you're already trying to be the church? What if it wasn't working? And what if instead of running to counterfeits to be those things, you came and received the real thing? And, and again, please, 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 please. I, I, know, I know that some of y'all in here are checking out Midtown. This is not like, hey, come buy season tickets to 12 South and come join us. I'm talking about like, if not here, I could, I could list for you a dozen great churches in this city. Like this is not, please, 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 please hear me. I, if you show me where you live, I will show you a great church to go do this in. Doesn't have to be here. Th this is what it means to be the church, is to be these things that you're already trying to be. And let's say you were interested. Let's say you wanted to be the church. How might we be transformed into doing that, into being that? How does Midtown, how does the Bible, how does human formation happen like we've looked at? happens through the power of our liturgies and the power of our liturgies to change us and form us because remember, liturgies continually put us in front of something to behold and we become what we behold. And so, do you know 
that when you come and practice the liturgy, practice the habit of coming to gather in this room, you come and you practice and you gather with the liturgy of hearing God's word read and God's word preached. When you practice the habit, you practice the liturgy of singing songs and hymns and confessions. When you practice the habit of the liturgy of doing that with the ecclesia together, guess what? Guess, guess what actually happens? It transforms us. Like in the seats, like right now, it, formation and, and, and development and transformation is happening in real time because we are continually beholding what our liturgy is put us, putting us in front of. That if you were here at the beginning of the service, when you hear each week a call to worship, which is exactly what it sounds like, it is your heavenly husband calling to you to come into this space, to come in into this space with the ecclesia and worship him. Do you know that over time, every week, over and over and over and over again, when you hear the call to worship, you might actually start to believe that your God actually does call to you, actually does seek you out, actually does woo you to himself. You might start to believe that you're his bride. And that when you come in and you read a corporate confession that Joseph just led us through and you hear hundreds of other people confessing the same idols and the same lusts and the same pride and then hearing the same pardon and the same assurance of forgiveness that Jesus has paid for those sins. Do you know that the more you do that with regularity in this body, in this ecclesia, you might actually start to believe that your sin is not that unique and that you're not as far off as you thought you might be? You're not as alone as you've believed yourself to be. You might actually start to believe that you're part of a body. And that when you come in here month after month and take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and communion, you will be formed and transformed into someone who believes that the sacrifice of Jesus, his paying for your sins, past, present, and future, has never run dry. And you might actually start to hear him as you eat the bread and drink the juice, his body and his blood. And you might actually start to believe he's still with me and he's never left me. He has not abandoned me because his body and his blood has paid for all of my sin. And he has not abandoned me. You might actually start to believe you're a temple in whom his spirit dwells. And the church's liturgies aren't limited to Sundays. Neither was the early church. They were gathering in homes regularly with intentionality with devotion, we call those small groups here. Raise your hand, are you in a small group? Who's in a small group? Anybody in a small group in here? Raise your hand. Talk to somebody who's raising their hand. Also, let me encourage you, if you're in a small group, go. <laughs> Liturgize that. And here's what I would say. Uh, it, it, like I said, it is a beautiful problem to have here. We're basically maxed out on our small group spots. And so if you're taking up a seat at one, go to one. Because there's people behind you who got waiting lists for people to, they want to join a small group, they can't. And so go, go to small group. And believe that the liturgy of that, the regular practice of that, the habit of that, do you know that when you sit around someone's living room and open God's word and discuss it and confess it and wrestle with it and share your life with someone, you might actually start to believe through that liturgy over time, week in and week out, that wait, maybe I'm a part of, I'm, I'm connected to these people. Maybe we are this city. Maybe we have this light. Maybe we're, I'm not so alone and I can take resources from this group and give resources to this group and we can be this city together. You might actually believe you belong there. So each piece of our order of worship every Sunday, each piece of our small group, each piece of what we do with our habits as a church, we are trying to invite you into believing what is already most true about you. 
And the more you do it, the more you make it a liturgy of your life, the more it will form you and transform you. Because remember, our liturgies are getting us in front of something to behold. Our liturgies are getting us in front of something to behold that we might become it. And so everything we do is an attempt to liturgize, is an attempt to get you in front that you might behold Jesus. Because when we see him, we will be like him. We are a church that believes in the importance of Jesus and the word and how it transforms us to be the church. Now, let me close with this for another 30 or so minutes. No, I'm kidding. Let me close with this briefly. Nothing about what we believe about formation and transformation here believes that you can become more of the bride of Christ or more of the body of Christ or more of the temple or more of the city. What we believe about formation and transformation is that these practices, these liturgies, these habits bring out what is already most true about you. You just don't believe it yet. You already are what you will be and are becoming. I know that sounds Zen, but it's not Zen, it's scripture, okay? That you already are what you will be and are becoming. And so when we practice these liturgies, you don't, the more that you come and, 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 and are a part of this ecclesia and, and this thing, this community, you don't become more of the bride of Christ. You already are the bride of Christ. You just might actually start believing it. You don't become more of the body. You just might actually functionally start believing it more. It might actually transform you. It hasn't made you into something that you're not. It's pulling out of you what is already true about you if you belong to Jesus. Analogies fall apart. But it's the same kind of thing that like everything that's needed for a forest is in an acorn. And I know very little about agriculture. But I know this, that with the right amount of time, watering, circumstances, sunlight, with the right amount of tilling, with the right amount of everything, regular, the, the right amount of liturgies for that acorn over the course of like centuries could turn it into a forest. But everything that's needed is already there. All that's happening to it is it's being transformed into what it already is and was meant to become. That's what the Bible says about you too. So what we believe about formation and transformation and what these liturgies help us live into, it's helping us live into who we already are. The problem is you just don't believe it yet. I don't really believe it yet. And so together we are living in this space of going, this is who the Bible calls me if I belong to Jesus. Man, I want that to transform me more than it already has. It's why though, just about every uh, uh, analogy in the New Testament for spiritual growth is agricultural. Because guess what happens when you plant a seed on Friday? You don't have fruit on Sunday. Guess what is true about agricultural things, I'm told? takes time, like a long time, which means, this is the last thing I'll say, this transformation, this process, this formative transformation process of beholding Jesus, of becoming what you already are and will be, guess what is also true about that? It's true of every stage of the Christian life. It involves waiting, which I hate. You're waiting for a more full and functional transformation of the self that is always wanting to be loved, always wanting to be different, always wanting to be immortal, always wanting to be connected, and waiting for that to fully happen is excruciating. Waiting is hard. And so here's the invitation. 
of Midtown 12 South or any other local church you decide to wait at. Waiting is a lot better when you're not alone. Come and wait with us while we wait for the formative, transformative power of beholding Jesus together. Let's pray. Jesus, we are not what we are and one day will be. You call us your bride, but it doesn't feel like it. That the adultery and the, and the betrayal on our end causes us to believe there's no way you would still call us your beloved. We're already your body that you nourish and you take care of and you draw together. We're already your temple in whom you've put your spirit. We're already your city on a hill full of light. Jesus, would you continue to form us and transform us into those that believe it? Not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world. Come quickly, Jesus. The waiting is hard. Until that day, I'm thankful for a place where I don't have to wait alone. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.